good morning, Westmount. It's always just so good. Again, I say it, I feel like every week, but more in these times, to worship together, is it not? And gather together, set our hearts rightly amidst a, a sea and a soup of all things wrong to just set our hearts and affections on the one thing right, on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Always an encouragement as we look to commit our time to Him. Let's do it now in God's Word. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus 29. If you are visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. I I trust and know you've been greeted already. Well, if you need a copy of God's Word for this morning, just look in front of you. In the racks in front of you, you can take one of those. Turn to the second book in that Bible, 29th chapter. That's where we are in our study of Exodus. And we continue in this section, really these two chapters specifically, dealing with the priesthood. It's been our study, the priesthood. The priesthood, of course, the ones chosen to stand for the people before God. The ones chosen to stand for the people before God. Last week in chapter 28, we'll review that in a moment, we considered three aspects of the priesthood. We saw them, and let's be reminded of them by way, again, of review and introduction. We looked at the people of the priesthood, the people of the priesthood. The very first priests, in fact, as you let your eyes scan back to chapter 28, verse 1, you remember them, announced by Yahweh, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Aaron, you see there, the first high priest, stated first, the parent, if you will, there, and Aaron's sons, also priests. Those together, the first priests, the inauguration of the priesthood. From Aaron then, and those coming after him, from his line and tribe came the rest. Aaron was a Levite, we noted this last week. His sons were Levites, and all their sons and priests to come were Levites. That is who our sovereign God chose to be priests. And we see that this is God's work. Aaron and the Levites chosen by God to be priests. The first priests here to be the line of priests. It was the Levites that would stand for Israel before God. And again, note that here, you see that specifically with the high priest, Aaron standing for all, representing all. Those are the people of the priesthood. Next, we looked at the presentation with the priesthood. The presentation with the priesthood. The holy garments, do you remember those? Prescribed in great and glorious detail. Holy garments means set-apart garments, garments unlike any other because because they're for God. They're garments in the presentation before God. As such, as we saw in chapter 28, verse 2, these holy garments, remember these two key descriptions were for glory and for beauty. The priesthood was to present splendidly because they were presenting before God's presence. Remember, such holy presence demands holy presentation. There is no other way. In Westmount, we commented that there is no option here. There's no alternative garments. 
These are the garments prescribed by God. No, the priesthood is clothed in righteousness, Psalm 132, 9. The presentation with the priesthood is holy garments for glory and beauty. We would say appropriate garments. Finally, last week, we looked individually at those garments themselves, the clothes. They were, of course, the pieces for the priesthood, the pieces for the priesthood. Six of them for the high priest, the chosen priest, enter God's presence once each year on that day of atonement to make a sin offering for himself and all Israel. These are the garments for him in that time. That one high priest representing, again, the many, standing before God for the many, he would wear these specific pieces. Again, just briefly, first the ephod, remember that? An outer vest garment that draped over the priest's front and back. And those two pieces fastened together, do you remember? The stone, the onyx stone on each shoulder. Stones that bear the names of who? The sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, all twelve on the stones. Those names, remember, verse 12, chapter 28, tells us Aaron bears to remember Israel. The representative for Israel bears that representation in God's presence. That's how he stands for the people. He bears that memoriam on his shoulder. And then there was, of course, the breast piece, the square piece of cloth that was folded over, remember, affixed like a pocket, like a pouch, to the ephod. And on the breast piece, you remember, were embedded gems of all glorious and beautiful kinds. Remember, it was just a a who's who of gems. In chapter 28, precious gems, 12 of them, each of them engraved with one of the sons of Israel. There again, shoulder and now on the chest. This time, as the text tells us at the end of verse 30, this is in chapter 28, remember this, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So remembering them on his shoulder, on the ephod, Here, they're very clearly bearing the judgment of the people as he entered God's presence. What a picture. And we talked a lot about it and will later today. That was illustrated in the ephod breast piece. We looked at the robe. The robe was the the one garment or the one bigger garment that was worn under the ephod. One long garment to the knees. And God called for the robe's hem, remember, to have pomegranates, embroidered pomegranates for beauty. For beauty, the beautiful fruit of the time, certainly on the hem of the robe. And beside those, of course, the bells of gold. For all those to hear as the high priest enters God's presence. What a signal. Then, of course, there was a turban, the priestly headpiece, whose central feature was the plate of pure gold. Do you remember it? The headgear with the plate right on Aaron's forehead. So think he's what he's bearing on the shoulder, what he's bearing on the chest. And now on his forehead was a plate that said, holy to the Lord. The stones reminding who the priest represented, the people in remembrance and judgment, and the gold plate reminding of how the priest represented. And this is the key, representing, and here's the manner, through the garments, holy to the Lord. The set-apart garments, the set-apart manner. Aaron, holy to the Lord. Finally, for the high priests, we looked at two of the most inner garments, the coat and the sash. The coat, or the tunic, if you will, was a common garment, remember. Common in one sense, but not common here, prescribed by God in its construction. This tunic was to be made of fine linen. 
And then, of course, the sash, the undergarment of the priest, craft with embroidered needlework. Those six garments exclusive to the high priest were complemented by the garments, and we saw this toward the end last time, the garments for the rest of the priests, the daily ministerial attire of those priests, which we saw in verse 40 that although not for the high priest, but for the courtyard priests, those ministering daily, they too prescribed garments of glory and of beauty. Those, the pieces for the priesthood, all given from the outer garments to the inner pieces. And this morning, as we turn to chapter 29, we will see further instructions given. Further instructions to the priesthood, all given from the outer to the inner pieces. All given. And we will see here, right from composition to installation. Further instructions for the priesthood. And as we will see, this next, time, this next step of installation from the pieces, right? From the composition. Specifically, the Bible calls it consecration. Biblical installation is consecration every time. To be installed To have purpose by God, there must be consecration. To consecrate, so you think of that word, we've covered it a number of times, not only in Exodus, but over the years here at Westmount, so this is hopefully is review for you. To consecrate means to what? To set apart. To consecrate is to set apart. It is to actively set apart. This is not a passive endeavor. Consecration is not passive. It's an active setting apart for the purpose and market, for the purpose of use for God, by God, and to God. That's what consecration is. And it makes sense for holy garments and holy presentation. At the very least, we would say that makes sense. Now, those that would wear holiness are here, and we'll see this in this chapter, those that are called to wear holiness, to wear the consecration, to wear the consecrated things, and here's the logical step then, you could say the most important piece for them, they're called to be consecrated themselves. Such a great disconnect for us, right? So often. We miss this, don't we? We just want consecrated things to think we're okay And we miss that God calls us to be consecrated ourselves. It's not just a matter of assembling all around you consecrated things, set apart things. Church people or church things or biblical things or religious things. God calls you, Christian, to be set apart, to be fully consecrated unto him. No surprise then we see this here with representatives of the people before God. No surprise should be there as we turn our attention to this next section. Not just as Yahweh, again, is specific with garments down to every specific detail, he will be very specific with this consecration. You will see that fully today. All the specific details that Yahweh calls for here. The installation, the ceremony again, the consecration to be set apart. Let's begin with a reading of the opening consecration. Look at verse 1, chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. 
You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Let us pray. Our Lord God, may you take these sacred inspired words directly from you. Give us eyes to see them a mind to understand them, a heart, Lord, to receive, Lord, them, and hands and feet to apply them. God, we cannot do that without your enablement. So we ask you to do that this morning and as we leave this place later for our betterment, but mostly and ultimately for your glory. Amen. These opening verses of chapter 29, you look at these first nine verses, serve as our next section as we just move along really to our fourth point of our priesthood study, which is this, the preparation for the priesthood. The preparation for the priesthood. We first note in the first verse, look at it, of chapter 29, and this is very, very important, and we've already talked about how we have a disconnect with consecration between stuff and self. Here, this is very important when we think of consecration, that In God's economy, something is needed before service. Something is required by God's prescription before service. God says, verse 1, consecrate them that, or we could render that this, consecrate them so that purpose they may serve me as priest. Do you see that? Consecrate them for the expressed purpose of service as priests. In other words, without consecration, mark this, beloved, without consecration, there is no serving me as priest. Let's let that settle in for a moment. Without consecration, there is no serving me as priest, God says. Special preparation is not just helpful, not even necessary, but listen, by Yahweh, special preparation is a divine imperative, says the Lord. We dare not miss this in verse 1. And why? To open this point, because we tend to neglect preparation, don't we? We tend to neglect preparation. And I don't mean with common things. We do that, don't we? Think of all the common things we neglect to prepare for. We, from jokes to sobriety, we can just say, oh yeah, I'm ready for that. I can do that. We do all kinds of things that way. I'm not talking about those common things. We're talking about a consecration for the holy things. The holy things. Just a couple of examples so we understand how important this is. Number one, how often do you attempt holy reading? How often do you attempt holy reading God's word without the right preparations? You fail to set apart the time. You neglect to slow down and consecrate the time. How often do you take time with God's word and you try to shove that into your schedule? And then we wonder why we're not getting anything out of it. Because we're just trying to shove it into our schedule. No, we consecrate the time. It should be our lives orbit around the things of God. 
I will make other time for other things, but this time I will set apart unto God. How often do you attempt holy gathering like today, Lord's Day, without the right preparation? You wake up, maybe late. You get busy with things, things you need to check and do and tend to. Then you rush out. And then we what? We struggle with engagement. Maybe we engage three quarters of the way through and then it's back to life, right? Back to our to-dos, back to the things we need to do. Beloved, how often do we attempt holy living, living holy, obedience without any sense of consecration? Just have a a jerry can of our own strength and our own time. I'm going to do this without consecrating it fully to the Lord. Life, service, and ministry, like we see principally here, beloved, please, they don't just happen. They don't just happen. If you like downstairs into illustrations I've said a thousand times, here's another one. Because the Olympics are on. They didn't just decide to be gold medalists. So you know what? I'm going to take eight days to try that out. They what? They set apart time, and then they set apart more time. And then after they set apart time, they set apart more time, and more time, and more time. If it's true for that devotion for the Olympian, how much more for you, Christian? Are you willing to set apart time, effort, energy, things? Are you willing to consecrate for the Lord? That's why this is important. Holy ministry, like the priesthood then, calls for holy preparation, for consecration. So what does that consecration look like for the priests of ancient Israel? Well, we have an entire chapter before us that is dedicated to that. And we should note that this entire chapter gives instructions, gives instructions explicitly for preparation, for consecration. It's wonderful. Later, by the way, in Leviticus 8, you can note this, we see these instructions actually carried out. Here you have in Exodus 29, they're given. Later in Leviticus 8, you see them carried out. Carried out, in fact, so precisely as you think about the book of Leviticus, in the ninth chapter, we see Yahweh very spectacularly affirm his acceptance of them doing these things. Here, though, we see instructions given to Israel by way of Moses to prepare. God says, first, gather, look at this in the first few verses, all the elements for consecration together. Gather them. In verse 1, he says, take a bull, one bull, and two rams. And, of course, not just any type, but look closely, but a bull and ram, or a bull and two rams, look at the end of verse 1, without blemish. If you were to look behind that word into the original, you would see that it means to be perfect complete or sound this is indeed spotless and pure to be prepared also look along with animals are unleavened bread cakes and oil we talked about leaven in exodus 12 god calls for that agent that agent that would do something to the bread to be taken out unleavened became a mark of something being pure for the israelite Note all of these elements, the bread and the animals, and here's the key, are called to be set apart. Then God calls the priests, Aaron and his sons, forward to the tent of meeting, so known as the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the tent, as we've been studying. There they are physically prepared for the priesthood, they are consecrated. The priests themselves, 
now to be set apart in three ways. Let's look at it. Number one, God calls and says they are washed. We see that at the end of verse 4. Wash them with water. What is important to note here is that there is no sense of hygiene back then. Certainly not to the hyper degree today, but back then especially there would be none of that. So why is that important? This washing is not because Yahweh is simply reminding them to bath and to scrub and get a little behind the ears and so on. That's not what he's saying here. What God is reminding and teaching them here is that they are unclean. Israelite, my people, you're unclean. What this act points to, what this physical act points to, is that a washing is needed to enter God's presence. Do you see that? What he's showing him and telling him is you need to be washed if you're going to enter my presence. Again, we're not talking about a shower. Think of what Jesus communicates to Peter in the upper room as he washes. After Peter's protest, Christ says, John 13, 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. There is a principle He's tapping into there, of course, though, Jesus referring to the daily need of cleansing from Christ. Yet, Jesus took an opportunity later that night with that washing picture to teach more. In fact, what he did later that night was to show that this washing was symbolic of something that was necessarily internally, spiritually, from the soul. Later in the account, Jesus tells Peter, remember, that he has already bathed. Do you remember that? Yes, Peter and the other apostles, minus Judas, Jesus actually says are completely clean. How so? That ancient Near East dust, remember, not just on the feet all over, they would have been filthy. How are they completely clean? Was the Apostle Paul explains in the book of Titus, Titus 3, 4, and 5, says it this way, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, these are God's people, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by how, and here it is, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, that necessary preparation to salvation. The washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, beloved, that is our salvation consecration. That is the necessary forewarner, prerequisite to God's presence. As such, that same picture is in view here for those preparing for God's presence. For those preparing for God's presence like the priests, they too then logically must wash. And we would say, as we zone back into ancient Israel here for a moment, just as our washing or our righteous works do nothing, so to this washing, Aaron and sons, it does nothing on the inside. But God calls for it on the outside as a visual picture. This is just like baptism. It is not effectual in and of itself. Those that are baptized aren't doing anything, earning anything by getting in the water. But God still commands it. Why? As a visual picture of an inward reality. So too the priests. They are to wash in preparation for the priesthood. So they're washed. Secondly, they're robed. Look at verse 5. Beginning, in fact, this robing begins in verse 5 and goes all the way through to verse 9. All the garments prescribed in chapter 28 here called to be put on by Aaron and sons. The garments of the high priest, Aaron, 
and those of the other priests, his sons. Those holy garments are not made to hang behind glass cases, right? They're not showpieces just to be looked at. They are to be worn. They're to be worn. That's why they're prescribed for being worn. And for the priests, they must be robed once they are washed. Note that, washed, robed, and so too for us as kingdom of priests. Once we are washed in regeneration, we are called to be robed how? In Christ. In Christ. We're called to put on Christ. Think of your New Testament. Put on Christ. Now this robing immediately follows regeneration, by the way. It's the call to put off ourself, our filthy selves and our sin, repent, and to put on faith in Christ. That is salvation. But Christian, this robing goes further. It's called for a robing every day. Again, think of the letters of the New Testament. As the ancient priest in Israel would have to put on the clothes as part of a regular practice and new each year, each day of atonement, the clothes would need to be put back on then again. So too we, church, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, are called to do so regularly. Romans 13.14 says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Very immediate sense. A very present sense there. In Colossians 3.12, we are called to put on, similarly as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, All that Christ is. And then you have that wonderful list of all that Christ is. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We are robed with holy garments as these priests are called to be robed holy. So the preparation for the priesthood is this. They are washed. They are robed. And then one more. Look at it in verse 7. They are anointed. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. The anointing for holy purposes is seen in other offices, by the way, not just for the priest. This is something you've seen before, but also for the consecration of kings. Think of 1 Samuel 10, the consecration of Saul to the kingship. 1 Samuel 16, a few chapters later, for David. And not just for kings, but also the consecration of prophets. Think of 1 Kings 19.16, Elisha and his consecration, his anointing. And of course, we as God's people, if we're truly His, if we're truly His, we have been anointed too. Now, we're not talking about glamorously in that modern sense of being anointed as a modern-day prophet. That's not what we're talking about. That is false teaching. Now, we've received Christians, all of us, not by asking for something or calling down something, nothing from us, but it's what the the triune God gives at the moment of salvation. It's what 1 John 2.20 says that has happened, an anointing by the Holy One, the moment of salvation. An anointing that gives you knowledge, eyes to see, mind to understand and confess Christ. The Holy One, Jesus Christ, in Acts 3.14 He too is recognized and confessed, who is also the anointed one. Here is where we tie this into the word, the anointed one. The word for anoint, the Old Testament, is Mishak. And that word is the word for Messiah. That's what that word means. It means thus Messiah, anointing, right? And you think about the root, the Messiah or the Messiah means one anointed, or we would say, and you've heard this, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. You see, where we need to orbit our thoughts around true anointing. 
Beloved, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, is the only true preparation for the priesthood. This is what the New Testament comes and tells us. Now we pause to consider all these efforts, right? This is so important when we think about the anointing as a Christian from Christ. You consider all these efforts to wash right, to robe right, to anoint right. All necessary, but as history past and future shows, we cannot fit ourselves for God's presence. The garments and consecration of Aaron and his son show us by God, through God's word, what we need. That's the purpose here. It's to show us what we need. Holy garments, holy preparation, consecration, we need that. But it won't be be long before Aaron and his son show us themselves, the ones chosen by God, that we can't do it. The very ones chosen by God to do it demonstrate that we can't. Human beings cannot. Exodus 32. Leviticus 10. What about Eli and his sons? 1 Samuel 2, right down to Malachi 2. Throughout the Old Testament, the indictment on those priests in picture and word. Thus, the purpose of Aaron, the first high priest, is to serve as a type to point us forward like so much in Exodus. Is it not true? You have this ancient picture pointing to this coming truth, the ultimate reality, to the Christ the coming great high priest, the Messiah, that not only anoints his own, but the one through his great intercession and fitness before God's presence, that here it is, that make washing, robing, and anointing possible for any priest on earth. That's the joy. Hebrews 5.4 tells us that Christ was called by God, just as Aaron was. Yet Christ didn't need preparation. He was holy, eternally. Thus, in Christ's church, we have our priestly preparation. In fact, to sum it up very succinctly and apply it to us today, Christ is your consecration. Christ is your consecration. You understand why not only being in Him, as David called maybe some of you to today. But living in him is so vital. If you do not consecrate your time and your life to Christ, you know how that goes. That's the preparation for the priesthood. Next, the process to the priesthood. This next section details the sacrifices required for priestly consecration. Three animals, look at them, Sacrificed here, beginning in verse 10. We introduced them earlier, of course, the bull and the two rams. And we're going to take time to read this section and consider the whole process. And it's a necessary exercise, church. Because in this process, I want to give you two things up front as we read this text. I want you to watch for, listen for, zone in on in these verses. Number one, to be fit for God's presence, and we'll see this, something must die. To be fit for God's presence, something must die. We noted this a few weeks ago with sacrifice. And I want you to look for it in this chapter. To be fit for God's presence, something must die. Two, in death, something happens to the blood. I want you to see that. In death, it's not just a death. There's something called for out of the blood and the blood is used for in that death. I want you to see that. Something happens to the blood. The blood is applied somewhere. 
That's very important. The blood is called for and used. It's in effect. So let's consider with those two things guiding our study in mind for this section, let's look at the inspired words. Verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for that is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put these, all these, on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burned offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. It's a lot there, but really what we're looking at are three sacrifices. Let's zone in. The first sacrifice, you saw that starting in verse 10, was the sin offering for the priest. You saw it called that, the sin offering for the priest. Note the symbolic act in verse 10. Aaron and his sons, get this, laying their hands on the bull. That's the picture. They lay their hands on the bull. You see this act actually before every sacrifice. And it represents what is known to us as transference. It's a big word, but it means the unholiness and impurity of the priest is transferred to the bull. That's where you see transference is a transfer. Symbolically, in this sense, what he's doing is transferring his sins to the bull. And then we say it is a picture here because in the new covenant, in the new covenant where you have 
what we would say the ultimate and only transference of our sin. It's actually called imputation. The great act of mercy, the imputing, the transfer of what? Our sin onto what sacrifice? Christ. The imputation of our sin, the transference of our sin onto Christ. Again, what we see in picture here in this ancient sacrifice is fulfilled in the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. This first bull offering is the sin offering, and note this, for the priests. This is part of the consecration. The very first thing God calls for here is a sacrifice for the priests before we get to the people. It's like Leviticus 4, a sin offering. They would have prepared, of course, the priests would have prepared through washing, robing, and anointing. But as human beings, and sin goes, and beloved, I think we all understand this, the sin just has a way of sticking at times, right? They would have been prepared and imagined, even they could be robed and washed and anointed in those steps leading in to that place, the holy place, the sin that so easily besets. And so this bull offering was to transfer that filth to the bull and sacrifice it. And sacrifice, destroyed it was. Praise God. The bull here in two places. First, the insides of the bull, the key organs, were the ones burned on the altar. You remember seeing that? And the outsides of the bull, the flesh, the skin, and the waist, were carried out. There's another picture. They were carried outside the camp. And when you're reading the law... What is outside the camp has a term, and it's referred to as what? The realm of the unclean. Leviticus 13, the realm of the cursed. Leviticus 24, verse 14. Then, of course, there was the blood covering the altar horns. Remember, where is this blood applied? On the altar, the altar horns. In fact, it fills the base of the altar. And note it, the sacrificial blood was the piece of the sacrifice that was needed. Do you see that? Of all the pieces of the sacrifice, it was the blood that was needed. The two rams are then sacrificed next. The first ram, and note this, a complete burnt offering. This offering, like the one described in Leviticus 1, where the sacrifice is cut up into pieces, then burned. That's the process. The blood of the first ram was here thrown against the sides of the altar again, the blood is used in this sacrifice. It's applied. So see that at this point, you have blood on, under, and around the altar, covered in blood. Then the second ram is killed, but not all the pieces are burnt up. We note this process here. So we have a sin offering, a burnt offering, and here we have what would be called, and we'll come back to this, a wave offering. Some of these pieces are left aside. And before we look at those, let's note some details of this second ram sacrifice. Number one, the blood, again, we have to comment on this. The blood of that sacrifice is to be applied where now? To Aaron and his sons. The blood is applied to them. Blood on what you hear with, right? The earlobe. Blood on what you act with, the thumbs, the hands. And blood on what you walk with feet and the toes, blood applied. The blood also applied, look at verse 21, with the oil, some sort of hybrid mix here, and sprinkled then on the garments. So the blood with the anointing oil taken together and sprinkled on the garments. That blood is defined by God here, consecrates Aaron and his sons. Do you see that? 
The anointing oil, the blood, sprinkled on Aaron and his sons is a consecration. Don't miss that. The blood makes them holy. You should have all kinds of things firing off right now. The blood makes them holy. The blood makes them holy. Westman, at this point, again, I hardly need to draw the lines for you, I pray, as new covenant Christians. What is being pictured here from this ancient priest is true of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. The blood makes us holy. The blood is what sets us apart. The blood of these sacrifices, the one applied to us, his people. And then one other detail, verses 24 to 28, you see it. Pieces of the animal, even the breads and the cakes. Note that the pieces, the breads, the cakes are taken and they're waved before the Lord. Maybe you've asked this question when you're reading a sacrifice. What is this waving? What's a wave offering? What is this waving before the Lord? Often in the law, it's actually called a wave offering. Church scholars and theologians are not precisely sure on all the mechanics of the wave offering, but some things can be clear just from the text. It would seem particularly, look at verse 24, that wave offerings are actually just that. It says they're taken in the palm of Aaron's hands. Do you see that? And you have this motion, right, over the altar, a back and forth Maybe an up and down over the altar. So there is a waving of these pieces over the altar. In some way, likely then, this wave offering as part of Aaron's ordination was a visual right over the altar that reminded God's people that he, the one standing in sacrifice, was standing for them. By way of an offering, and look at the text, verse 28, that signified peace. He stood there. He stood there representing the people before God, waving this offering, presenting this offering, if you will, in a gesture that would seem to signify peace. And we get that from verse 28. It says this, It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. Peace offering, very similar to Leviticus 3. I mean, you see how all of this starts to come together with other pieces of the law. That is the process to the priesthood. We have one more point in this chapter as we close it. The perpetual priesthood. This is how this chapter ends, with the perpetual priesthood. The idea of a perpetual priesthood, an office enduring beyond Aaron and sons, a priesthood that would carry on for generation and even beyond, listen, is found here in this last section of chapter 29. And it's given a number of times in a number of manners. As always, that means it's very important. Let's look first at verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, this is looking forward now, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place shall wear them seven days. You see that, a priesthood... Right, that carries on beyond. This is beyond Aaron and his sons. This ordination is not just for Aaron and his sons, not just for the five of them, but it's for their sons and then their sons. This is on and on. In verse 30, we're told that this ordination ceremony, this robing, look at it, lasts seven days. It's a seven-day process, a seven-day length would clearly mark, think about this, this is not just a day ceremony, this is a week-long ceremony. A very stunning visual reminder of the transition of office. There was a priest, and in this sense, a new priest, the next son to stand before them. 
Then on the heels of that succession plan, we return to those leftover pieces. You remember them? Look at verse 31. You should take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn that remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. The second ram, look at that, the ram of ordination, that peace offering was not all burned up. Some pieces were waved, some the blood was used. And here, when you think about the picture that we just see here, the, the rest is eaten. The remaining pieces are eaten. It's like a ceremonial meal, if you will, consumed by Aaron and his sons. And note it, only them. Do you see the text? Only them. In verse 33, we're told that no outsider can eat of this meal. Why? Because they, Aaron and his sons, are holy. In other words, an outsider would not be. If we could really simplify it crudely, we'd say we've gone to all of this effort to make holy Aaron and his sons. They are the ones then made holy to consume. They are holy. So this is, and note this, an exclusion based on, and this is so important, moral state and standing. Not anything else. We cannot stand our exclusions today. Make great lengths for inclusivity. And listen, in one sense, we're all for that, right? But we cannot stand the sense. If we cannot stand exclusivity, hear me, and I pray rightly, we have great distaste for moral exclusivity. We can't even fathom it. Let me give you one example. You will hear this. It's a special occasion. How dare you say I'm not right before God? How dare you say that? And what do we need to say? We don't say that. God does. And here you have in one, it would seem, little obscure detail in Aaron's account an understanding that you must be holy in my presence. No outsider can meet of this meal because unlike Aaron and his sons through what all we've looked at in 20 and 29, they are holy. This is exclusion based on moral state, not anything else. That is why, by the way, this meal is to be consumed immediately. If you wonder about the details, you look at it like, why can they not wait till morning? Why in the morning it would be invalidated? Because the priests do what? Like we talked about already, they'll sin again, Right? How often do we feel that? Made clean, repent, get up, wash by His grace, sin again. And on it goes. The seven-day consecration is summarized next. Look at verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. You just can't escape the call for holiness, can we? That was the momentary consecration upon the ordination of priests. However, there was a priestly ministry that served daily, not just yearly. 
not only highlighted here in a moment for the high priest Aaron and his sons, but listen, now we're going to see something more. For those serving daily, do you remember the other priests serving, ministering daily, not just yearly? This regular service is closing the chapter here. It's found in verse 38. Listen carefully. These are all the priests. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering, and its drink offering is in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Even in the old system, look at it, offering was not just called for yearly upon ordination. Don't miss this as we close. Here we see prescription for offerings how often? Regularly. And not just daily, by the way. How often? Twice a day. Yes, sacrifice to God was certainly necessary for the ordination of priests, the high priests and so on, for that important moment to consecrate the man in the ministry. But sacrifice, look at it, beloved, was necessary for more than a moment of consecration. This would be disconnect number seven, probably this morning I give to you. We look at moments of consecration. Of course, the wedding day is the most famous one. The disconnect between the ceremony and the wedding day and the life of wedding. Sacrifice then here too and even more was necessary for more than a moment, a ceremony of consecration because God's presence, here it is, was more than that moment of consecration. What they needed to start seeing here in this old administration is that it wasn't just Yahweh's just showing up here and then he's gone. He's showing up here just a little, right? You know, the, the boss shows up for a moment and everyone's kind of on and then he lit. No, that's not it at all. We see here ongoing, regular sacrifice was necessary for communion with Yahweh. Two lambs a day, lambs, two lambs a day, offered with precise directions. A lamb offered, look, in the morning, along with an accompanying drink offering, and a lamb offered in the evening, along with an accompanying grain offering. Both call for not only to be, look at the text, a pleasing aroma for the Lord, which just simply means acceptable to him, But both called for as regular burnt offerings, verse 42, throughout the generations. And Krishna, I compel you, do you see that? That dwelling of God with his people, look at verse 45. That relationship maintained by regular, daily, twice a daily, we could say, offerings. That's the perpetual priesthood. Don't miss it. Now we must close in two things need to be said in light of our closing and in light of these two chapters. The text begs it. Number one is the practical. Relationship, communion with God is not momentary. I've said it before and we just need to make sure we're clear on this as we end. It's not just that salvation moment or the Sunday morning moment. We need to shed ourselves of this sensibility of living as Christians in moments. 
relationship, and I mean intimate God-dwelling-with-you relationship, communion, and by that we mean the reality of man growing closer with God in intimate communion. That relationship, that communion, regular, daily, is what? Morning and evening. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. That said, you communed with God this morning. I, I, I pray you will leave this place and, and you will say that maybe to each other. Right? You will say it was good to be with God's people. You will say we had communion with God. I pray you will say as you leave this place, we communed with God. But will you say that this evening? What about tomorrow at lunch? What about Wednesday at 3 o'clock? Will you say you communed with God then? Will you commune with God this week, morning and evening? And then after the evening in the morning, and then after the morning, the evening, will you commune with God regularly? Communion is not a moment. Romans 12.1 affirms this, called to present our bodies ongoing regularly as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, just on Sunday mornings. You know that text, right? No. Always. Always. As a living sacrifice, every day, it's your spiritual worship, your service. And the question is, do you? Two, once the practical, this is the reminder. You setting aside time daily for communion with God is one thing. But of all that energy and fruit, you know this, Christian, it's impossible without the priesthood. The priesthood, remember, is the mechanism for us to even be in God's presence at all. In the forbearance of God, he allowed Israel, Aaron, to meet him by way of Levites. Looking back now, looking back as New Covenant Christians, we know those priests were sinful. Washed, robed, and anointed. But as the Old Testament text would go on to tell us, by no means holy, right? See Aaron's sons, Eli among others. But, but we need to end with this. This is the marvelous grace of it all, is it not? I pray you leave with that. God dwelling with unfit, unholy, sinful men and women. Aaron had robes, but they were given by God. We have robes, but they're given by Christ, our high priest. His ministry and only his priestly ministry makes us right and fit at all for God's presence. There's no other way to be fit and right for God. Beloved, Christ's ministry on our behalf needs no regulation or maintenance This was all about regulation and maintenance, right? In the old administration. But with Christ, it needs none. His priesthood is defined in the book of Hebrews. Jeremy read this this morning. Remember our twin study, it feels like in Hebrews. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's morning and evening. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's who he is, and that's who we are not. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered him himself. Do you, do you grab that? He didn't need a sin offering before he entered the holy place. Why? He's perfect. He's a spotless lamb. That's your great interceder. He's perfect. You don't, need not worry if he sins between here and there because he's perfect. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect, what? Forever. Forever. The law appoints imperfect men for us. The word appoints a perfect son for us. That son, the Messiah, the Christ, is our great high priest sacrificed for us. And he's standing for us on our behalf, making us. And what are we? I felt it this week, and you're feeling it this week as well too. Children of weakness, right? That recognize with each day in these times and beyond, we can do nothing. But he's making us in our weakness like him, perfect forever, the text just said. That, that is the glory That is the beauty of the priesthood. And beloved, if you're in Christ today, that is the priesthood that is your hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful. How can we express our gratitude? How can we express the wonder and joy of these beloved things? We are unfit, unable, incapable, yet you sent your Son who is perfectly fit perfectly capable, perfectly holy to stand on our behalf, our great high priest. What do we say to these things? Oh, Lord, please open eyes this morning, open hearts, and I pray use hands and feet to be holy morning and evening, morning and evening. God, we thank you for these grand truths. May we live by them, not just for our betterment, but may we live by them so that you would be glorified. And the world would know there's not just a holy God, but a merciful God, one that sent his son for them to die in the place of ruined sinners. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.